Hello, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Black Skin Red Hard Podcast. This podcast aims to be one that covers, in a broad sense, the history of Black Americans and communism. The political history of Black Americans is rich with remarkable people with fervent and fierce devotion to both leftist and conservative ideologies. I believe that radicalism has been a way that many Black Americans have found to be the best political gains in America. Black Skin Red Heart began as an obsession when I was unemployed at the start of the pandemic, and the race protests were happening across the country. I ended up in my apartment all day reading, and I dug into weird corners of things that I found interesting. Comparing and contrasting history, and really trying to use an approach to examine Black American communists in a comparative way to illustrate the evolution of their ideology from experiences that are often glanced over. It became a fun exploration of an intellectual history which helped enrich how I saw the politics at the time. It grew and became something more, which was a look at unique and obscured and buried history. Not really a secret knowledge, but an overlooked history and arc of an ideology and growth of a community over time. It, it tends to be ignored by the already niche communities that are supposedly dedicated to exploring it, but this was really my chance to explore it on my own and dedicate a little bit of time to it, um, to really focus on it and, and give it the attention that I think it deserves. The central premise for the podcast is that when radicalism is used in practice, it applies the necessary characteristics of politics that are ignored, specifically in this case, race in America for black people. The stories I want to highlight are ones that have significant impact despite being lesser known in the annals of history. Black Americans and communism have been circling one another for well over a century. There are a lot of stories to tell of a lot of people and a lot of communities over many eras throughout the entire country, all regions around it. In a lot of communities, uh, Black Americans went to communist ideology for unique and specific reasons. Jim Crow, sharecropping, the Ku Klux Klan, the Northern Migration, unions, Vietnam, segregation, integration, capitalism. There were all sorts of reasons for Black Americans' political reactions that drove them towards communist ideology. It really is that circumstances make the politics of the time, not the other way around. Real politics comes from necessity. And that's really what I wanted this podcast to be a look at, were the real political and historical causes at the time that led people to these ideologies and why some found success with it, why some found failure, but to explore it from a 21st century perspective, to look back and to see a lot of the ideas that have been applied, that have been explored, and to take a look at the people that found them earlier on. The first part of our podcast is going to be a look at a Black American communist named Harry Haywood. Harry Haywood was significant for many reasons. His global adventures as led by a Black American were significant at the time. He was a trailblazer and a first for many things. But one of the major developments he put out into the world were his additions to the theory of self-determination for Black Americans. The idea of self-determination of Black Americans is, to be honest, quite controversial. It's been called everything from unrealistic, racist, pro-separatist, all the way to the only way for Black Americans to achieve independence in the United States. 
I wanted to cover it because I see a lot of value in Leninist thought when it's applied to race in America. Harry's ideas are very interesting, even when I fully don't agree with them myself. But I see a lot of value in presenting them and a lot of value in exploring them. We'll get into that in the later episodes once we get there, but I wanted to just bring that up at the outset. Harry Haywood was a Black American communist born at the turn of the century, a foundational Black American communist. Harry's story isn't often told, but can help illustrate the array of history that has impacted Black Americans and how communism appears as a solution to the problems faced by many people in America. His life is an incredible story that brings us through the American South, to Europe, where Harry fought in the First World War, to the labor movement in Chicago, and then to Moscow, where Harry received an education in a Leninist school for six years. Harry was an incredible man made by the extraordinary experiences of his life. Part One, The Life of Harry Haywood. The story of a Black American radical begins with the story of emancipation in the state of Missouri. The Missouri Compromise, which admitted Missouri as a slave state and Maine as a free state, was a compromise of half measures. The attempt was managing an evil that no bureaucracy could resolve. How to satisfy the majority in the face of an unignorable evil. The country settled on a solution that was devised to build in an untenable status quo. It caused concern in the northern states about further slave expansion, possibly now into the western territories, and from the south, the limits on slavery in Missouri were encroachments to their trade. The Missouri Compromise is an example of what American political compromise using half measures looks like. The Compromise did help postpone the Civil War, which at the time seemed frighteningly possible, but the war was unstoppable anyway, and would nearly destroy the nation 40 years later because of the dividing line set by the Compromise. In 1861, Karl Marx described the American situation. The progressive abuse of the Union by the slave power working through its alliance with the Northern Democratic Party is the general formula of United States history since the beginning of this century. The successive compromise measures mark the successive degrees of the encroachment by which the Union became more and more transformed into the slave of the slave owner. The limitation of slavery to its constitutional area was the distinct ground upon which the menace of secession was first uttered in the House of Representatives. Moreover, the oligarchy of the 300,000 slave owners could not even maintain their sway at home save by constantly throwing out their white plebeians the bait of prospective conquest within and without the frontiers of the United States. Marx's main point was that the slave states held political power in areas where slavery was outlawed, which in many ways delegitimized American democracy. The prospective conquests that he, that he referred to were three of the demands of the slave states, to expand slavery into the Western territories, to invade and conquer Cuba to hold as an offshore slave state, and the proposed colonization of Mexico, who had at that point already outlawed slavery. Within 20 years after the compromise, another issue came out of Missouri. Dred Scott was an enslaved black man whose owners had taken him from Missouri, a slave-holding state, 
to Illinois and the Wisconsin Territory, where slavery was illegal. When his owners later brought him back to Missouri, Scott sued in court for his freedom and claimed that because he had been taken into free U.S. territory, he had automatically been freed and was legally no longer a slave. Pursuing his freedom up through the Supreme Court, the court ruled against Dred Scott. The case showed that the issue of freedom remained a complicated and unresolved issue for black people in the country. These were two events, just out of Missouri, that acted as some of the igniting forces leading to the American Civil War. But by that point, the whole country was tearing itself apart. By the end of that Civil War, nearly a generation had died, a country nearly fell out of existence, and while slavery had been abolished in the United States and black people around the nation were now citizens, the issue of race in the United States entered an entirely new phase. After the level of destruction the war caused that Marx called, quote, a generational holy war of property against labor, the U.S. had to reckon with a recent war that questioned its nature as a state. The United States now contended with race in a post-Civil War, post-abolition, and post-Second Revolutionary period. This was an era that is sometimes referred to as the peacetime period. At least that was the name given to it. An equilibrium was being established as the country tried to evolve from what it had been into what it was going to be. The post-antebellum era was quickly bringing a new country into view. It was after that war that the surge of private firearms sales rose. It wasn't that most Americans were unfamiliar with firearms, it was that this era brought a rise of widespread affordable firearms technology. The firearms industries boomed, and with their growth, firearms had been seen as an integral part of the security of the nation since the founding of the country. Part of that integral security was influenced by race from the start. As a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The language for this amendment in part decided to pacify slave states' fear of control of their state's militia being ceded to the federal government. The slave states used state militias to quell slave revolts. The slave states needed control over their militias to ensure the safety of their industry. Gun control has also been used against black people. In 1834, Tennessee changed the wording of their, in their constitution from free men of this state have the right to keep and bear arms for their common defense to free white men of the state have the right to keep and bear arms for their common defense. It was in response to the growing number of free black people in the state and their fears of not being able to quell a riot on the free but secondary class person. The gun control measures taken immediately after the Civil War were done to keep guns from the hands of black people. After the war, Virginia wrote into law that free black people were not allowed to own firearms. The rebuilding efforts of Reconstruction were significant attempts to change the nation, but soon it showed its limits. America would rebuild itself with much of the same philosophy as it had before. These are all important to keep in mind as we step into the next major era of American life, what is called the Great Middle. In 1866, the Winchester Repeating Arms Company was founded. Colt was founded just before the war in 1855. Smith & West similarly was founded in the mid-1850s and all went on to expand greatly after the war. This new post-war era also brought a wave of rising new crime and violence to the United States. This was a period in American history of large migrations of people, 
white people heading west to conquer the continental territories, former slaves leaving the south, white immigrants growing in major cities on the coasts. America began to grow and spread into unwieldy regions. New worlds coming with the birth of the Old West, industrial New York, railroad America, and more, which would all build new settlements that would go on to shape the next century. On February 13, 1866, there was a bank robbery in Liberty, Missouri. It was the first bank robbery of the post-war era. A group of former Confederate Army soldiers that felt disdain for the United States government and abandoned by their insurgent government after its fall were desperate men. These men planned a robbery, a plot to steal Yankee money. Yankee money had taken over all the banks after the war. Confederate dollars were worthless. With the surge of guns and desperation across the country, these young men decided to take for themselves from the government who had defeated them in war what they could not take otherwise. Thirteen men rode into Liberty and took over the Clay County Savings Association. The haul from the vault was $62,000, which today would be around $1.9 million. It was a huge success. That day, though, the robbers were one man short. Their leader was still recovering from a nearly fatal shot to his chest that he had received during the war. Although he had planned the robbery, he could not be there for it. Nerves were on edge, and with the large haul, it caused some trouble inside the bank. The gang made a hasty getaway that left a 17-year-old named George Wymore dead outside the bank. After the death of the young man, the head of the gang would write a letter to Wymore's mother apologizing for the death of her son. The letter was signed by the gang's leader, Jesse James. The Clay County Savings Outing was the first for the famed outlaw. As the first robbery of the peacetime era, the event sent a shockwave through the region and the country. The gang would go on to establish identifying characteristics to grow and create fear in America. Jesse James would go on to have his gang wear clan-like hoods to disguise their faces, and he used this imagery to evoke a fear out of the Yankees they were terrorizing and robbing. It was in a world of this kind of chaos that the new America began to coalesce. Harry Haywood's mother, Harriet Thorpe, had called Missouri home for several generations. Harriet's father, Jerry, was the son of a slave and a Creek Indian, and like all black families, Harriet's local ties would only go back so far if they went back at all, but it seems the Thorpes had lived around Missouri for at least a few generations. Before leaving St. Thomas, Missouri for St. Louis, Harriet worked for several white families in the area. One day, while Harriet was working at a home on a quiet street named Mitchell Avenue, several gunshots rang out loudly from the home next door. Screams could be heard all around the neighborhood, and Harriet, along with the other neighbors, poured out into the streets toward the home where the shots came from. They all followed the sounds coming from inside, and in the home they found a man had been shot. The screams had been coming from his wife. Someone had come in and executed her husband while he was hanging up a picture on his living room wall. The shooter was named Robert Ford, and the man he shot and killed was named Jesse James. The man Harriet eventually married, Haywood Hall, was also the descendant of Southern slaves. It was Harry's father who had roots in Nebraska. Grandfather Hall, Haywood's father, had been a slave until they were emancipated when he took the Hall name from the plantation owner. 
Grandfather Hall had built a reputation as a, quote, bad nigger. The Knight Riders, patrols, and clansmen's were the enforcers of the area, and even after the emancipation of slaves, they terrorized the black communities. These men were only kept off Haywood's father by Colonel Hall, the plantation owner, who had let his former slaves stay on the property. The protections from Colonel Hall, though, could only go too far, and soon Grandfather Hall set all these men off. What he did to do that is still unknown. Perhaps Grandfather Hall had too much to drink, or maybe he really did something to upset the men. Either way, the Klansmen eventually showed up at the Hall's home late one night. The hooded men stormed the house, waking the whole Hall family up. The men came into the home and threatened their lives. In a flash of a moment, shadowed by the dark, Grandfather Hall picked up and aimed his shotgun. He fired at one of the men in the room, and the hooded figure's head was blown straight through his hood. The clansman lost half of his skull and toppled over in the room. The others scattered, and the Halls had some time to escape. This was the first time that Harry's family had to escape the ire of whites around them. Before the sun had risen, Grandfather Hall packed up his pregnant wife, and they drove their wagon out of town, off to build a new life in Nebraska. Harriet Haywood came to Nebraska through a complicated series of events. Harriet was married when she was a maid in Missouri. She had a daughter with her first husband, a no-good yellow nigga, Harriet said. She had to escape a bad marriage and left the Missouri area. She moved herself to Omaha and had to leave her daughter behind. It was when Harriet was in Omaha that she met Haywood, Harry's father. They then married later in Nebraska and Omaha. Some years later, Harriet's daughter would come to live with the Halls in Omaha. Harriet wanted to do what she could to help her now. And soon after arriving to stay with the Halls, she married Haywood's youngest brother. With him, she lived a life in Omaha near her mother. The Halls grew up for a time together in Nebraska. In 1898, Harry Haywood was born to Harriet and Haywood as Haywood Hall Jr. The family was settling in in Omaha. The world that Harry was raised into by his mother was one that remembered slavery as a physical memory. It had just been a few decades before. Although she was not literate, Harriet was a deeply articulate woman and taught her children a great deal about her life. Her memory stretched back nearly as far as she'd been alive. She would tell her boys about life on the plantation and the world immediately following that she lived her youth in. In Omaha, Harriet was a successful caterer. The home Harriet made was one where on the days they were not working or at church, the local domestics would gather for parties where they discussed the local white families and their goings on, the scandalous doings and the gossip of the lives of the other domestics. Harriet's gatherings were some influential and informal organizing efforts that Harry learned early from his mother. It showed the power of a community's collective. Robin D.G. Kelly, the UCLA professor and distinguished scholar on African-American studies and black labor, wrote in his essay, We Are Not What We Seem, quote, Not surprisingly, studies that seriously consider the sloppy, undetermined, everyday nature of workplace resistance have focused on the workers who face considerable barriers to traditional trade union organization. 
black domestic workers devised a whole array of creative strategies, including slowdowns, theft or panhandling, leaving work early or quitting in order to control the pace of work, increasing wages, compensate for underpayment, reduce hours, and seize more personal autonomy. These individual acts often had a collective basis that remained hidden from their employers. Black women household workers in the urban South generally abided by a code of ethics or established a blacklist so they could collectively avoid employers who had proved unscrupulous, abusive, or unfair. Harriet's education about black collectivism for political and economic reasons began as a social occurrence in his mother's sitting room. Not a historically uncommon way for these ideas to really spread. His mother's community efforts for the black workers in Omaha could be seen as an extension of her being raised within a plantation and immediate post-antebellum community of slaves that emerged in the post-war era. For Harry, community would come to mean many things, but this black collectivism was an important aspect that helped shape his understanding of the importance of the struggle of others. Nebraska was another cornerstone of tensions leading up to the Civil War. The state was settled largely by Council Bluffs and the Nebraska Ferry Company. Many of its settlers were white northerners who opposed slavery and industrialists that supported bringing in the labor force. During the Civil War, Nebraska sided with the Union and had many Republican representatives. Omaha was also the starting point for the Transcontinental Railroad. Nebraska became a destination point for a great number of people, both black and white. Many African Americans had made Omaha their home starting in the middle of the 19th century. In the West, Omaha had the third largest black population behind Los Angeles and Denver. Life in South Omaha was not made up of solely black people and socially distanced wealthy white families, though. The majority of the 20,000 residents of South Omaha at the time were first-generation white immigrants. Irish, Bohemians, Poles, Serbs, and Russians all contributed to the social, intellectual, and economic environment that helped shape Harry's political philosophy. It would be something that opened him up to the white and non-American political thinkers like Vladimir Lenin later in his life. In the early 20th century, Bohemians were immigrating from the Kingdom of Bohemia as changes there slowly aided alive, before the New World era took apart another European kingdom. In South Omaha, they were an organized minority in the face of xenophobia at the turn of century America. Bohemians in Omaha had their own newspaper and ensured that all their children were literate and educated. They quickly understood the specific American political maneuverings of the city and managed to elect a mayor and chief of police to ensure some protection from the wealthier white residents with older roots in Nebraska. Harry was impressed with Bohemians' collective concern for their people. Harry noted that the Irish, who were the second largest group of whites in the area, had splintered into two sides. The recent Irish immigrants were kept to the undesirable neighborhood by the stockyards, a shanty neighborhood called Indian Hill, where they forcibly kept Bohemians and black people out of, while the first set of immigrants, the Lace Curtain Irish, that had settled and now called themselves the Old Settlers, kept themselves on the other side of town. This lace curtain set were middle-class, white-collar professional workers that lived closer toward North, North Omaha, which was the desired part of the city where the oldest settlers resided. North Omaha was home to the German and Anglo-American population that had first settled the area and laid claim to the land. 
Omaha had been a territory largely conquered and settled by land barons. A series of land-grabbing barons began to lay claim to the area and soon incorporated their land with the government to form towns and cities across Nebraska. To quote Harry, there were only a few dozen black families in South Omaha, scattered throughout the community. There was no black ghetto as I saw it, no Negro problem. This was undoubtedly due to our small numbers, although there was a relatively large number of blacks living in North Omaha. The black community there had grown after black people were brought in as strike breakers during the 1894 strike packing in the packing industry. But no real ghetto developed until after World War I. Harry grew up in the mostly bohemian neighborhood part of South Omaha. The area was full of workers, professionals, artists, musicians, and skilled laborers of countless kinds. To quote Harry, to us children, black repression seemed restricted to the South, outside of the orbit of our immediate experience. As I saw it then, there was no deliberate plot of white against black. I thought there were two kinds of white folk, good and bad, and the latter were mainly in the South. Most of those I knew in South Omaha were good people. Disillusionment came later in my life. All these immigrants were fleeing the oppressive Austro-Hungarian Empire. Harry would remark continuously about the strength in their community for keeping up their language and their traditions. Not all of South Omaha was this open or embracing. One day Harry was walking with his father and brother near the railroad tracks that cut through Omaha and ended in the stockyards in the south part of the town. Nearly 100 people, men, women, and children, were walking down the tracks away from their lives and carrying every one of their belongings with them. These displaced people were Greek immigrants that had settled in the Irish part of South Omaha. A Greek teen had killed an Irish cop, and that led the Indian Hill Irish population on a violent spree to literally burn the Greeks from out of their part of town. Throwing families out of their homes, destroying belongings, burning down whole buildings, and assaulting anyone who dared to stay. Harry remembered his father scolding a black friend of their family for having taken part in the attacks against the Greeks. The family friend had boasted to Harry's father about helping the white friends drive out the unwanted immigrants. Harry's father called the man a fool and warned, next time it might be you they drive out. The issue of race and its relation to the power structures would be the issue that came to define Harry Haywood. It was at this time in American history when Woodrow Wilson decided to segregate the federal workforce. After Reconstruction, Black Americans had been admitted into the federal workforce to work alongside their white American counterparts. It was one of the major acts designed to create parity in a post-slavery, now equal America that Reconstruction was at least attempting to undertake. It was an expansive and reaching attempt to reestablish American institutions in a new light with the acknowledgement of the previous sins of the nation. Reconstruction de-established the Confederate States and it set three amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. With this period brought new elections and with those elections that were held in the South, they were held with free black men in some of the positions. This era tried to build a new America, not by just granting black people freedom, but by trying to open up the positions in free elections and redefine how American government was supposed to function. 
in, in a more positive read to American history, one could say that Reconstruction was a tremendous success in breaking enormous barriers that seemed impossible even just a generation before. In many ways, the brief glimpses that we got may have been the closest the Black Americans will come to seeing justice in America. Reconstruction was seen as a forced takeover and one that brought with it an illegitimate government. The force of the Democratic Party was used to violently break the efforts of Reconstruction to build a country for whites out of the ashes of the Civil War. Woodrow Wilson's efforts to break the last remnants of Reconstruction were just as violent as anything done before to break the rules that were made in the immediate peacetime period. Wilson began the segregation effort by restructuring the post office. In 1913, the United States Post Office began firing, demoting, and moving every one of their black employees. The few that remained in the federal service were barred from interacting with the public. One of the major reasons Wilson did this was that the civil service had grown as a profession for black Americans in the years since they had been allowed to join. Especially in cities like Chicago, where black families were growing in number from the Great Migration, positions in civil service were establishing a kind of black professional class. A large amount of Harry's political education came from his father, Haywood Sr. Haywood Sr. was an avid reader who used his self-taught ability of reading and educating his children to expand their worldview. Their home was filled with books that took up large portions of their living room and hallways. Harry's education in school was filled with the kind of racism that was injected into all American life at that point, and Haywood found it necessary to educate his children as well. It was with his father that Harry learned about ancient Egypt, ancient Ethiopia, and Kush. The children were taught about the involvement of the number of black people in American politics and in the Civil War. Harry learned about Toussaint Louverture and the Zulu chief Shaka. He learned the side of black world history that seems intentionally left out of textbooks. The whole family had a painting in their living room that Harry would sit and stare at as he read from his father's library. Harry would pick between the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, Ivanhoe, Up From Slavery, or other books his father had collected over the years, and sit reading, looking at the painting in the living room. The painting was of the Black Infantry's 10th Cavalry Charge at San Juan Hill during the Spanish-American War. Created under an 1866 Peacetime Army Act, the 9th and 10th Cavalry Regiments of the six all-Black Cavalry and Infantry Units are these days best known by the name Buffalo Soldiers, which was the name given to them by the American Indians they encountered on assignments. The Buffalo Soldiers encountered the Indians when the 10th Cavalry were sent out west to Texas and Kansas to help secure the land for the white settlers who were facing continued raids and opposition by the Indian tribes in the area who were being driven out. The Buffaloes also defeated Indian tribes who battled the Pacific Railroad efforts, which had been halted by Indian attacks numerous times. The 9th Cavalry was sent to settle Indian upheavals a new land being settled by the government after the forced displacement of the tribes. The Buffalo Soldiers, in many ways a distressed minority, faced a deserved hatred by the Indians they encountered, but they also faced a continued oppression from the white people they were sent out to serve. The charge of the 10th Cavalry at San Juan Hill took place in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. The war was an early imperial experiment. A fortuitous explosion aboard the USS Maine 
led the United States to intervene in a revolution, the Cuban War of Independence, that it wanted to control the outcome of. The how and why the United States began its involvement in the area is too complex to summarize. The Caribbean had been of serious interest to the United States, at least since Monroe, but arguably even earlier. There were internal goings-on that led to many men in the government wanting to engage with Cuba. A more conspiratorial understanding that is often brought up surrounds Teddy Roosevelt, that he orchestrated the entire plot to build a reputation for himself and to launch the war to make himself a war hero. But whichever way it was, there were many interests, including humanitarian ones, that desired war, and they got it. Teddy was involved in selling the Cuban revolutionaries to the American government as a people that were a noble group of revolutionaries, ones who were throwing the shackles off of a European empire in decline. When Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders, his personally manufactured unit, were dropped into Cuba, they found the revolutionaries they'd been extolling. Much to Teddy's dismay, many of these revolutionaries were not the noble Cubans of his fantasies. A lot of the revolting populace that the Americans discovered were dark-skinned, very dark. These former slaves had risen up to fight their imperial overlords, and in Cuba, Teddy found himself in the middle of them. The Rough Riders decided that the black revolutionaries could be abandoned and they would go forward offering more selective help during the war, moving closer uh, toward more Spanish climates. The Black Infantry 10th Cavalry was sent to charge San Juan Hill because the Rough Riders had gotten themselves trapped behind entrenched and well-stocked Spanish forces. It was a days-long battle, but by the night, the American reinforcements, specifically the 10th Cavalry, had taken the hill and defeated the Spanish. The Rough Riders were freed by the Black Infantry, and the Rough Riders were also given credit for the victory battle in the papers. It seemed to be an important enough event to have a painting of on his family's living room wall that Haywood would have talked to his boys a bit about it. It was an important item, and they took it with them wherever they moved. By 1913, Harry and his family had been driven out of Omaha. They fled to Minneapolis, further than fleeing to Chicago. In Omaha, Harry's father, Haywood, had been attacked by an Irish mob. They beat him nearly to death and threatened his life if he didn't uproot his family. He came home before Harriet had gotten home from work herself and readied his things. His family was turned upside down in a matter of minutes. Terrified children afraid of what was happening and being told they had to leave their home. Suddenly what was this morning was no longer true. In a few hours they had to plan. This was the home that their family had owned, which was often rare for black people in Omaha. Haywood left the family in a hurry. He left so quick he didn't get to see Harriet, who had still not yet returned home from work. With instructions from Haywood, Harriet and the kids were to get their things together over the next week, quit schools and their work, and then head off to Minneapolis to meet their runaway father. To quote Harry, the cruelest blow, perhaps, was the shattering image of father. True enough, I had not regarded him as a hero. Still, however, I had retained a great deal of respect for him. He was undoubtedly a very complex man, very sensitive and imaginative. Probably he had never gotten over the horror of that scene in the cabin near Martin, Tennessee, where as a boy he had seen his father kill the Klansmen. He distrusted and feared poor whites, 
especially the native-born, and in Omaha, the shanty Irish. Harry's father helped orchestrate his family's exit from Omaha, but they were screwed over on the way out. They were given $300 for their home, which was worth more than four times that. They found their way out of the city by being smuggled on a railway car headed out of Omaha and into Minneapolis. Harry was 15 by this point and had begun to be aware in a different way that he'd have to adapt his worldview around the way race shaped his life. Harry knew he was growing up too quickly, perhaps, but when he began school in Minneapolis, he felt a shift. On his first day at school, Harry entered the entirely white classroom to them mocking him by singing an old plantation song at him in a heavy Negro dialect. Harry stayed the remainder of the day, but he never returned to the school. He was 15 and dropped out of school, starting going to work full time. By the next year, the First World War had started. By the end of the war, the Kingdom of Bohemia would formally end, and Harry would be a different man. Harry didn't easily end up in Europe, but his first trip there was one that shaped how he saw the world. The First World War on the European front lines showed a new world to Harry. When the war started, Harry enlisted in the military and was swept off to Europe to fight. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Black Skin, Red Heart. On the next episode, we'll be covering how Harry enlisted with the U.S. military and his experiences in the war, which led him to work in Chicago, that enlisted him directly with the Communist Party, and then led him to Moscow. Thank you for joining us for this first part, and I hope you come back to see how Harry's life evolved and the world changed, but I feel that it was very necessary to try to set up the world in which Harry came into. His story gets even more exciting and more riveting, and he meets incredible people and had amazing experiences. I think the Chicago and um, uh, the Moscow episodes might be my favorite here. Um, I also really love the, the First World War part and all of his experiences, and I can't wait to share the rest of this journey of looking at the first part of the life of Harry Haywood with you all. Thank you very much, and have a good rest of your day.